oftentimes we've seen clients that it's so clear on paper how more money invested in the business would 10x the business. But in most cases, they're afraid to do it. One, because they haven't taken real cash off the table yet. Two, they don't want to raise capital because they feel like that's giving up equity. Or they're scared. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Tropical MBA Podcast. Thank you for choosing us. Today, I'm joining you from the much-cooled-off entrepreneurial hub of Austin, Texas. Of course, the boss man and myself have returned from our summer in Spain, which was an incredible experience. One we're going to talk about in a few weeks here on the podcast, it was a summer of learning, of growth, of meeting with coaches and consultants and great friends and listeners of the pod who stopped by our office and shared with us advice and frank feedback and yeah, I feel like now being back in Austin, it's just hyper heads down time preparing for another upheaval, which is our biggest DCBKK ever. In just a few weeks now, we'll be hosting members of our private forum, the Dynamite Circle. They're flying to Bangkok. So many of you listening right now are on your way to Bangkok to come join us. Even today's guest is coming. And so this few weeks here is really about implementation before we enter into another, what is going to prove to be, I'm sure, like a few weeks of amazing feedback and ideation and inspiration, and then hopefully through the rest of the year, lots of implementation. So more on our personal experience shortly, but today I want to share with you the story of someone who I've known for a long time personally, and it's been inspiring to see him grow into an incredible dynamic entrepreneur. We've told part of his story here on the show. The early days story, we'll link up to that in the description but this journey has had many layers. Corin started as a guy with a dream to a guy that had an e-commerce store to a guy that became a business broker to a guy that became a million-dollar dealmaker and investor. And he's going to share just how he's done that today in a show we've cheekily titled Five Small Ways to Go Big. We brainstormed these principles and then tried to provide some unique examples that Corin's used in his career to embody those principles. And just a little caveat, one of those principles involves investing. And so of course, as always, when we're talking about investing, it's not advice. It's just some perspectives that you might want to think about or not. So without further ado, let's get into it. My name's Corin Woodmass. I'm semi-retired. <laughs> it's a new title. I'm an investor and advisor. And my main brand is BillionDollarExits.com. The concept of this episode comes from something I've observed in you over the years. And I want to set the tone with the audience about that, which is, I think you were particularly great at this concept we're going to talk about today. And we've sort of called it small ways to go big. We always talk about things on this podcast, like the stair step approach. Shout out Rob Walling the thousand day principle, the hustle, the grind. 
And so this is sort of my persona, like the beast of burden, bear the cross. Entrepreneurship is so hard. And you like to work as hard as the next entrepreneur, but you also are great at simplifying, focusing, and being effective with your strategic decisions. And now it's become something of a pattern. This isn't something I read about you in your biography on your website. Like I've seen you do this five small ways, relatively emotionally simple ways, fun ways to go big. Define big. (laughs) (laughs) When I first started in the brokerage space as a sell side advisor, my ideal goal, my ideal outcome was to make $100,000 a year. That was big to me. Yeah, it was meaningful. It definitely would have taken me to a better place than I was in at the time. And it's funny how fast that can become the small stair step. But a stair step does help. But I love the fact last night when we talked about this, you said, let's talk about some elevator moves. (laughs) So instead (laughs) of taking the staircase, how do we take the elevator? And yeah, so 100,000 might be the goal. It might be leaving a job. It might be investing to replace your business income or your corporate job. It could be, I'm not happy until I'm doing a hundred million a year. I want to be a billionaire, whatever that might be. I just thought of someone who is spent years thinking about starting a business, but has never done it. Going big for them might be leaving a toxic relationship that, for example, doesn't support their dreams. I mean, that can be harder than some of the things we're going to talk about today that can lead to seven, eight, and even nine figure outcomes. I know you're going to say even 10 figure outcomes, right? Right, right. (laughs) Well, I think you've hit on something that some of the smallest things that have the biggest impact are mental and emotional. That's actually the biggest wins I've seen personally. All right. Number one, pay for your information. The Tropical MBA podcast is free. Are you insinuating this is low class information? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. There's a time and a place for free information. There's a time and a place to pay for information. And I might give this some context by saying I didn't finish high school, but I've invested, I think, somewhere in the vicinity of $750,000 in educating myself. How much in the past year? Approximately $150,000. You don't have to share every single dollar, but I'd be curious about some of the different ones and the efficacy of them, like which ones were a really good idea. And then if you could help us identify like some patterns about what information, you know, I probably buy five or six to seven books a month ish, maybe more actually sometimes, but uh, I can't get to your number. Freeline is podcast blogs that can give you the first inkling as to something might be more interesting. And if it is something that you find useful and you want to take it further, maybe they have something to take that further. Maybe there's a course, mastermind, event, software, whatever it is. So it might make sense for you to take that extra step. And it might not. I was kind of resistant to investing in personal development too heavily in the beginning, partially because I didn't have a lot of money in the beginning. But then also I had some sort of I didn't want to be scammed and I didn't want to turn to my wife and say, hey, I've invested in this and done nothing with it. There was just that ego and fear 
attached to it. And what I've discovered over all these years and... Can I, can I interrupt you? For good reason. I mean, I've had listeners of this show call me and say, I'm about ready to write this check to this person. And I go look at their site and I'm like, this is a scam. They are. They can be. Absolutely. Take responsibility for your own actions. If you honestly feel like this is a good thing that you need in your life, invest in it, but then do it. Well, I, I'll say this too. I just, the person that you want to pay to be your guru, it's just like getting married. They're going to be exactly the same person on the other side of that payment. So if they're not giving you the freaking goods before you pay the money, it's not going to happen once you pay the money. Yeah, that's a good perspective. Also, accountability to yourself. Are you actually following through on this? Oftentimes when people aren't happy with paying for something, especially when it comes to concepts and then you have to deliver, the easiest outcome is, oh, I, I wasted X dollars on this and it didn't work. Well, how much effort did you put into it? I actually paid for a course recently, five, six grand, something like this, paid for it, understood the business model and said, yeah, that's not for me. And I'm not mad about it. It's actually helping me with my investing. <laughs> so I understand way more about this one vertical than I would have if I hadn't have invested the time and the money. If it's your only five grand, then maybe don't put all the chips in on one piece of information. <laughs> or maybe do. Like You still have to back yourself. Yeah. Unless it's a done for you, which usually the done for you on the back of info isn't so great in my experience. Why is that? Because usually the people that are really good at coaching, I know you've talked a lot about coaches recently on the pod. I find it's very rare, in my experience at least, to have a really great operator that's business operator that's also a great coach. It's two very different skill sets. Cool. Number one, pay for info. I typically do it at a smaller level, but it's something that I've been really opening my mind to. I have seen how eight hours in a room with one person dedicated to my details, how much that can be worth to me has been a bit of a revelatory situation for me in the past 12 months. So one other thing, I found this out by accident. I was speaking at a lot of events and as a speaker, you're always in the, the next level room or whatever. And I'd never really considered paying for the high level ticket at an event before. And once I was in the other rooms, it was instantly clear why you want to pay to be in the best room. Tell me why. That you can afford, right? I wouldn't go out on a limb. Like if I'd actually put this... Don't make out, it, it's not your one shot, you know? It's not your one shot. But as you're building up a war chest to invest, these are some of the things I'd invest in first. Because just that one meeting with the right person... It's not so much to get a deal done with them directly. It's where that will take you. And I started doing this thing when I was speaking at events where I would go talk to the other speakers, specifically if they were service providers, because we're talking to the same target market. They have the same problems. They help our clients at a different level. It's the before, during, and after. Hat to Dean Jackson, who always talks about before, during, and after. Who has my customer before, during, and after me? So talking to other speakers, also service providers, created this huge network that I could network with. And if I wasn't speaking, if I paid that extra level for the ticket, 
I'd be able to go meet them. And I'll just add one more thing. The single biggest ROI I've seen personally is from mastermind groups, high paid mastermind groups. You pay for access into the right room and paid masterminds are just an amazing way to do that. Number two, leverage the highest and best. You're going to have to flush that one out for us. <laughs> so I learned about highest and best use from Jay Abraham. Who is a guru? He is a guru. He is a guru. <laughs> He's also not my guru, but I, I did have the opportunity. He does have a lot of pithy statements about business, though. So shout out, Jay Abraham. You, you've been a boss. I actually managed to, uh, through paying five grand for an info product and a group, mastermind group, ended up on a call with Jay Abraham. And I got to, I didn't know that wasn't part of the sales pitch. It was like this hidden bonus after. However, here's what it is. What is the single best, highest and best use for X? I'll give you an example. I started out my first real job because I didn't finish school. I could barely speak English was I, I went into selling. So learn how to sell shit door to door. That's how I got started. And over time, I started thinking and then I read this from Jay Abraham is if you can sell a pencil, can you sell a super yacht? You're still selling. There's still people. There's a product. There's a problem that you're solving. So highest and best use would be, well, what's the highest thing, highest ticket thing you could sell? And that's what took me into the world of business selling and also investing. And How did you apply that concept? A book I really love, I've read this book probably 10 times, is James Altucher's Choose Yourself Guide to Wealth. Specifically, the Choose Yourself one is... Yeah, but the Guide to Wealth one for me was really good. And one of the exercises he proclaims that will change your life is writing 10 ideas. Now, he didn't come up with this idea, which is ironic to me. <laughs> I think it was, it was someone else that was super famous. But anyway, he uses this all the time. And I was sitting in Stromovka Park in Prague, and I was really at a crossroads. We'd been buying, building, and selling online businesses, Google had wiped out half our portfolio and I was in that mode where what do I do? I'm not happy with the small stuff. I want to do something big. And I was doing these 10 ideas and one of the exercises, you should try this, is write down 10 ideas you think would be really cool but are impossible or you feel would be impossible. The example he gave was live on Mars, go live on Mars. And if you thought, hey, go live on Mars is really cool, then break it down to what would be the first step to making that happen. So you go really big and then you come back to what's the first step. One of those 10 ideas I wrote was be part of a billion dollar exit. And I didn't know whether I meant to build a business to exit for a billion dollars. I fleshed this out after because I was like, well, what's the first step in doing that? We'll probably get around people that are building businesses to that level and help them somehow. And the easiest way would be to find a business worth a billion dollars and help them sell it. So that's actually literally how I got into the brokerage side of the world. What's the largest exit you've been a part of thus far? 55 for a closed deal, 55. So then the billion dollar exits, it's an aspirational brand. Correct. Right now. So you're like a student of billion dollar exits. That's the idea. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the thing is I've been fascinated by big deals, reading about them, talking to people that have had big exits that have bought big deals, finance big deals. About half a million of that 750 I mentioned before was going and working with paying consultants. That was a lot on the business side to figure out our sales process to mirror what these large deals do. So like your business model essentially at that time was you're charging a retainer to do advisory, to get their books in the right order. These people are aiming for that 10, 15, $20 million exit. So you're getting not only that retainer of like Corin's team is guiding you towards the exit, but when the exit happens, you take your brokerage fee. And that's a negotiated part of the deal. Correct. So specifically, this leverage the highest and the best. You're saying... I'm good at sales. I might as well be selling large businesses rather than selling products on websites. Yeah, exactly. That was the biggest thing I could think of was I'd already, like I said, been following, just curious, interested, always read that headline. If it's anything to do with a large deal, I need to deep dive. I need to go figure out what's happening. So some an example of that is I read about the acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon and I kept digging and I found out that the sell side advisor, buy side advisor, and the lender who put that deal together split 150 million in fees. It's not a bad day at the office. (laughs) How might someone like me leverage this concept of highest and best? So as a long time listener and also a friend, I think you underrate the frameworks that you've created that really help people. So the example of putting DCBKK together, and of course, people are going to get ROI, that's if they choose their own adventure. So one thing you could do right now is you have so many podcasts, but unless you go and filter them, you're not going to know which one to listen in which order. So you talk about the thousand day principle, which I I agree with 100%, by the way. How about putting together a product that's here's the thousand day principle and go deeper on certain topics, give people the overall vision, but then help them find that path, follow the path. Like turn a thousand days into 300. Kind yeah, of the accelerator idea would be awesome on the thousand day principle. How do you get that faster? And that's higher and better because right now I'm, well, right now it doesn't even exist. And so, but I'm kind of doing it right in the background is what you're saying. So if I flip it up and focus on, hey, well, if you agree that this is a good concept and you want it implemented, then you could just pay me a lot because you're going to get a lot. And then that's how to kind of repurpose stuff for highest and best. Yeah, it compresses time. And there could be levers, like there could be levels to that. So maybe someone's already making six figures. So they're on their way. That's revenue. That's not net profit, right? Or whatever. Yeah. So how do you actually get over that next hump faster? That could be an accelerator type idea there. Yeah. The podcasting thing. I mean, podcasting is huge. It's getting bigger and bigger all the time. How do you actually craft your message? How do you build a back end. Even it's funny that you say you're resistant to selling info, but conferences are kind of info, right? Yeah. Masterminds, it's info. We're paying to see other people speak. So you're already doing that. It's just how do you kick it up a notch? Highest and best. All right. Number one, pay for info. Number two, leveraged highest and best. Number three, small ways to go big, slow down to speed up. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so I'm an F1 fan. So I'm going to go with Formula One as a an example of this. So 
Formula One cars are hybrid engines. They essentially harvest energy from braking to give the cars more power. So in some cases, a driver will be harvesting energy on a lap instead of driving as fast as he can. And then on the next lap, he'll have way more power to make that overtaking move get further in the race. Got it. So in some cases, you don't want to go flat out because you have a bigger game plan in mind. Got it. So like another business example at a high level I've heard of this is like, if your business is like over-optimized and everything's hyper-efficient, well, then you don't have time to like skunk works, kick around, expose yourself to new ideas. You can't be showing up to this perfectly optimized day for a cash flow that's not the highest and the best. Give us a specific example of how to slow down to speed up. So I heard on an interview that Sarah Blakely, so Sarah Blakely created Spanx. She lives about five minutes away from her office and she would do a fake commute every day. She'd drive 45 minutes to the office because it was the only time she didn't have the kids. She didn't have the staff asking her a bunch of questions. It was time for her to actually think. And she said that was the biggest lever for her to move forward was having that time, the free time to think. It depends too what your function in your company is. Like if you're a COO, sometimes being plugged in into the mainframe, so to speak, is the way to go. But if your responsibility is strategic direction and all you're doing is reading emails from everybody all day long, I agree. This is an interesting elevator because what's a way to specifically, let's give a takeaway. How could someone implement this tomorrow? Well, I think your point was really good is what's your function and what's your skill set? What are you responsible for in the business? That's a great way to think about it. And then if you are more of the big picture thinker, you need to come up with the strategy, it falls on you, then maybe trying taking time to do this. And I do a few things. So I cycle between podcasts and audiobooks. I find there's times to fill up on information and then time to just think. So I'll go for a walk on the beach for an hour, for example, with no podcast, no audiobook. That's a critical part. If I get myself to the point of boredom, my brain just has to start doing something. That really works for me. So try it, but it may not work for you if your brain doesn't work like mine. Whether you're a founder, a recruiting manager, or just the person who does everything around the office that's also hiring the next person, we've got stress-free ways to help you find your next great remote employee. Check it out. Click through on your phone. I made a chart that shows all of our products for SaaS and e-commerce companies seeking to save time and build elite teams. Try our flat rate recruiting product. We have a 90% success rate. For teams who need to hire quickly, try our pre-vetted candidates. Right now on our website, we've got over 200 potential team members that our experienced recruiting team has already spoken with and are looking to go work at companies like yours. And for companies seeking to maximize candidate flow and direct it by skill, location, level of experience, all while filtering out spam candidates, you got to post a job on our incredible platform. Go ahead and post a job over at Dynamite Jobs and click promote. That starts at just a few hundred dollars. All of our clients receive full email and phone support so your campaigns won't ever stall out. Check out our site or schedule a call today. Dynamite Jobs, the hiring platform for remote-first companies.
So just to recap, number one, pay for your info. Number two, leverage the highest and best. Number three, slow down to speed up. Number four, double down on your entrepreneurial skill. So we've kind of been alluding to this a little bit. The things that I should be doing are very narrow. Once you know what you're best at, and unfortunately for most of us, you need to figure that out by doing a lot of the stuff you shouldn't be doing. Because it's just basically trial and error. And also you have to. If you're the business owner, you have to. What is all this talk about people being unsure about this, imposter syndrome? How can we find some clarity in what we're actually good at as an entrepreneur? Yeah. So the first would be trying a bunch of different things and assess who you're following and why. So a lot of business advice is all about how to be a great manager or a great CEO. And it's often written by a professional CEO. Most entrepreneurial founders are not fit to be CEOs. Right? There's a lot of reason why an eight-figure business will sell and then become a nine or a ten-figure business under professional management, for example. There's a lot of examples of that or a lot of reasons why that happens. Because often the, the founder themselves are constraining the business with their own knowledge, their own skill set, their own fears. You're often holding things back. Why aren't founders effective cash managers and executives? For one, we're not really trained to do that. Most of us don't have the personality that fits that. Something to get a business started, find that product market fit, get it selling, get it happening is a different skill set than it needs to keep it running or to even invest to grow further. Oftentimes we've seen clients that it's so clear on paper how more money invested in the business would 10x the business. But in most cases, they're afraid to do it. One, because they haven't taken real cash off the table yet. Two, they don't want to raise capital because they feel like that's giving up equity. Or they're scared, right? <laughs> what I've noticed, no matter how much personal wealth you have, you are always worried about it going away tomorrow. No matter how diversified, whatever. The Rock has this saying, there's always the wolf scratching at the door. Have you seen this? No. That he talks about. And his business is called Seven Bucks Production. He had seven bucks in his pocket when he created this company. Like, yes, we're all terrified about zero. If you've come from nothing. I can't speak to being generationally wealthy. I, I didn't come from that, so I don't know. But if you're the first wealth builder in your family line, you're going to be worried about this. How did you double down on your entrepreneurial skill? I'm decent at sales, but I feel like my strong suit is deal making. I have an ability to uncover what's really important on both sides of a transaction and then do my best possible attempt to make something work for both sides, but also know if it's not working, more importantly, for our clients. If we're on the sales side, is this the absolute best outcome you can get at this point in time, yes or no. I remember one of the tensions you've had over the years is that you were living the digital nomad lifestyle and you kind of had this aha moment that's like, to my entrepreneurial skill right now depends on me speaking with people on the telephone at minimum. And as we all know, when you're living in Asia and your marketplace is in North America, there's not a lot of overlap to talk on the phone. I started this, the first brokerage in Thailand and there were days where I was on calls till 2, 3 a.m. in the morning and my next call would be at 6 a.m. So that took us to the U.S. despite never 
wanting to even be a tourist in the US, I actually got the visa sorted and spent a lot of time in the US, which was great for business. But it's not where lifestyle wise, it's not where I want to be. I find there's too much hustle culture and not enough lifestyle mix. So I think of it as levels like there's location independence, which a lot of us have very easily and go to Dynamite Jobs if you want to <laughs> leverage this yourself. You can find a bunch of jobs out there. You don't even have to be an entrepreneur. Then there's the next level, which is times I'm calling time zone freedom. So this is what I'm working on next. There is an, a third level, which I did second, which is cash flow freedom, which I think is really important, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But yeah, lifestyle or location freedom, time zone freedom, and that's the levels, I think. That's really, really interesting. Something that's an active exploration for my entire career and something I, I love to talk about. Could we take a coda, we're on point number four, and I want to talk about a theme that's been sprinkled into episodes over the past couple of years, which is as an Australian who's like doing the expat thing and the digital nomad thing, how did it impact your career to move to the US? It was transformational. I wouldn't credit the US alone as being not every business should go there. Specifically for me, it was the network I needed to be in. And I was closer to the, the money, basically. In the M&A world worldwide, it's still the vast majority of deals are done in the US. So for my category, for what I wanted to do, I needed to be at the source. And at the time we started spending more time there, the big deals weren't getting done on Zoom. They are now, which is cool. There have been uh, listeners who've written emails to us and said, well, we've been talking about Europe versus Asia versus America, the business culture, the lifestyle, this and that. It's a constant theme. But one of the things that producer Jane pointed out to me and that we've been discussing is for so many Europeans, it was their time in North America that allowed them to level up. Similar idea with why aren't founders great managers of eight and nine figure businesses? Well, because they haven't done it before. And typically the experienced executives are coming from other eight and nine figure companies where they learned I'm reading this excellent book right now called Working Backwards. It's by two top Amazon executives. And guess what they are now? Executives of other companies. You know what I mean? Like, of course. And so this idea of having a stint of your career in America, just like going to a conference, just it can be a very powerful concept. What are the downsides of having a stint in America? I think the hustle culture is pretty insane. It's a double-edged sword. So oftentimes when you meet someone, uh, they'll be trying to, I think you called it social climbing, was it the other day when we're talking about this? They're just, people are your friend to get something out of you or to leverage, to basically step on you to get where they want to go. And that happened so many times that I was trying to figure out, are we friends or are we not? What, <laughs> what is this? Like it was, I had so many relationships in the US that are so confusing to me. Whereas other times like traveling, I meet someone in Prague, for example, where we lived before going to the US, there was never that question. 
like even something that seemingly lifestyle in America, say the wedding of a young person in the entrepreneurial world, the dinner table talk will all be basically a mastermind. It can be like that in America. That's kind of unthinkable in Southern Europe. I don't know. It's unthinkable in a lot of places is the point. And it's a little bit pathological, but it's also what makes the US the US. Yeah, it, that's what I mean. It's a double-edged sword. That's really great for you to move through a space or a, an event because people are, are doing that too. You can take that approach. Um, it never really resonated with me. You can talk to someone, say, what do you do? And immediately turn around and walk away. And it's not seen as rude. It's just, oh, yeah, cool. I can resonate with that. Like It's seen as smart. I've had it happen to me multiple times where you know, whatever it was that I said as a response to their question obviously didn't qualify me for the conversation. We laud that kind of thing. Also, there's a similar culture in China, I might point out, in terms of one of the things I was reflecting on the other day is that I've really never been anywhere in the world where people work harder than China. I love this conversation because I, I do think it's fundamentally location independent isn't location arbitrary. All right, so moving on to point number five. So again, small ways to go big. Number one, pay for your info. Number two, leverage the highest and best. Number three, slow down to speed up. Number four, double down on your entrepreneurial skill. And number five, last but not least, cultivate your deal flow. Specifically here, you're talking about become an investor sooner. Yes. And this is not just where to put your capital. It's the first investment is time. So specifically, I remember I had a buddy a few years ago who he said, hey, Dan, I got 30 grand. Where should I invest it? And what I would personally say is, listen to this podcast and think about points one, two, three, and four. Because like, let's not talk about your idea for an Airbnb. The highest and best for your 30 grand is definitely not an Airbnb. Okay. Definitely not. <laughs> so first investment, your time. How do you invest in your time? Yeah. So protecting time is number one. So when I started thinking about investing, I went immediately, I got caught up in the, the trap. So when you're an entrepreneur and you're talking to other entrepreneur friends, it's all about revenue. Whatever that thing is for you, it's a measuring contest. When it comes to investing, what do you normally hear? Well, I got... 10,000% return on Bitcoin. It's chasing returns. No one ever talks about the time they invest in that investment. And then I realized that my time is way more valuable helping my team get deals and close deals than the Airbnb example. Oh yeah, I can make 20%, 30, 50% return. When I started looking at, it actually happened when I was looking at small businesses to buy. It's so easy when you look at a small business, if you have entrepreneurial skill sets to go, I could make this X better. Yeah. But then I started thinking about, well, how much time would that take? A lot of the smaller businesses I was looking at didn't have the cash flow to hire the people to move the needle, to do the things I thought could move the needle. And you might be wrong. So how much time is that actually going to take? And if you look at it on a per hour basis, if you're pretty efficient and you know your numbers, most entrepreneurs that are a visionary type people that have a good system in place would probably be 
in the vicinity of one to 10,000 an hour on average, I'd say. And if you think about that in an investing term, if you have to put any of your own time into it, the returns have to be infinitely higher. So when does that pendulum start to change for most founders? It depends. What we focus on is completely passive investing. Investing in yourself, that's infinite return because that hits your bottom line. But when it comes to investing outside of the business, I look for cash flow plays and I look for things that don't take my time. And it takes time to, <laughs> the rub is it takes time to find them. It also takes time to learn what's a good and bad deal. So this is something you might carve out coffee time for. Every day you'd spend half an hour or like an hour or two a week on what type of investing, cash flow investing is interesting to me. So like understanding what you're looking for, coming up with a criteria, which I'm happy to share mine. Yeah, it might be useful. Why is this an elevator? Why is this a small way to go big? So I've read about investing since I was like 18. I waited until I had over seven figures liquid to invest outside of my business. And it was the biggest mistake ever. Why? Because I missed out on the compounding return. Now, compounding return, in my opinion, is or my perspective. What I look at now is very different to what you might be thinking. So you might think compounded return. Well, if I bought Bitcoin at 30,000 and it went to 60,000, that's compounded return. That's not what I'm talking about. We focus on cash flow investing. Most of our deals pay us monthly. Some pay quarterly, but that's it. Like monthly or quarterly, that's... And then there's backend stuff on the deals we do. Yeah. So these are collateralized cash flow loans, essentially. A big portion of the portfolio is debt. So we invest in debt. It's basically fixed income. But then there's some kickers on the other end. That's not all we do. But every deal we're in has to cash flow. It has to pay back a set percentage of cash flow. And then the upside we look at second. Now, you like we, we commonly say wait till seven figures liquid on the pod. What's a number that you think is more reasonable? So the 30 grand example would be perfect for this. If you don't have a way to put 30 grand into your business, I'd start figuring out cash flow investing. But I wouldn't put all the 30 grand into the first So deal. wait, 30 grand, assuming that you've like, you have a business and that you've already gone to whatever coaching accelerator book, right? Do the same thing with the investing though. Figure out what type of investing you're interested in. So let's use the Airbnb example. Hey, Airbnb sounds cool. Well, how much time is that going to take? Do I have that free time? Am I factoring in that one to 10,000 an hour into my returns? And you won't get that return with only 30 grand, right? So immediately, boom, it's gone. That's not the deal for me. Got it. But what else could you do? What else is out there? So learning, getting access to going and, and being a part of groups or coaching with someone that's in a certain vertical, that's the next piece of investing in yourself is figuring out what type of deals am I after? Because if you don't have a criteria, you don't know what you're looking for. Yeah. And you're stuck with whatever stupid deal comes across your desk. Start poking around, asking questions. I mean, what about, what do you say to people who say like, this is the number one way people lose their wealth? Like people don't typically have like a sneaker collection that drives them into the poor house. It's typically that they heard about a cash flow investment in a restaurant downtown. And, you know, they know the person because that person had another restaurant. And so then you write the $100,000 check. You know where I'm going with this? Yep. So that's not a cash flowing deal. 
here's what I look at with an investment. I want collateral, so I want downside protection. So one of the groups we invest with do hard money lending for real estate flips, and they only lend up to 70% of the value of the property. So if they default, we get to sell the house and it cash flows every single month. Got it. And, and we're paid more, way, way more than you'd get interest in the bank kind of thing. So not losing your money, Warren Buffett is probably the most misquoted investor on earth. But his rules for investing are number one, don't lose money. Number two, see rule number one. So <laughs> you actually want to figure out the first thing you do is how am I going to lose money in this deal? What could go wrong? And you mitigate that by getting cash flow sooner, having a way to get your money back and collateral, ideally, a lot of collateral. One of the ways that I can interpret this is like, this is going to be your world if you do all this, if you take the elevator. So get used to it as soon as you can. To give you perspective here, a lot of people think oh, I don't need the money. So I don't need to worry about a cash flow investment. I don't need to worry about cash flow today. I can wait because my business is good, whatever. Um, a guy I used to work with in Australia, he was a contractor, solopreneur, basically. By my estimation, he was probably making a million a year net, right? At least on his own. In his mid 40s, had a massive stroke, uh, won't be able to work again. What do you think happened to his cash flow? He was the business. Yeah. Right. So there's a part of me that thought I have a lumpy cash flow business, right? Which I think is probably a benefit to seeing the world like this. But my first goal is replace income. Okay. So we're on number five small ways to go big, AKA elevators, pay for info, leverage highest and best, slow down to speed up, double down on your entrepreneurial skill, and finally cultivate your deal flow, which I think we can agree is probably the most complicated. Cultivate your deal flow is a lot to wrap your mind around, but it's the end game. The end game is income from passive investments. And you're saying educating yourself about deal flow, about passive investments, anticipate that. Don't wait until you got seven figures liquid. The, the most annoying thing is to get seven figures liquid, be looking around and going, hey, I've got this money and have no idea where to put it. Corn Woodmass, everybody, you can find them at billiondollarexits.com. And uh, thanks for joining us again on the TNBA pod. Thanks for having me. This was fun. That's it for this one. Shout out to my guy, Corin Woodmass, for coming by the pod and dropping the heat. Click on your phone if you want to see links and resources to everything we talked about today. Also, you can find other stuff about the podcast, like our mailing list. You can even drop us a review ski. We appreciate that stuff. It helps more people find the TNBA. You can find me at Dan at tropicalmba.com. And we'll be back as always next Thursday, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.